Hello, and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Nico Franks. We hope you're safe and well, staying positive and testing negative. Today, we hear from the co-founders of RuPaul's Drag Race producer World of Wonder to talk about drag's invasion of the mainstream and the producer of a groundbreaking low-budget drama from New Zealand about a transgender activist that recently launched on Hulu in the US. RuPaul's Drag Race, the competition reality format where talented drag queens design, dance, act and lip-sync for a cash prize, continues to travel the world, with remakes filmed in Thailand, the UK, Netherlands, Canada and most recently Spain, and a down-under version for Australia and New Zealand. World of Wonder, the production company co-founded by Randy Bobato and Fenton Bailey in 1991, has used the show as a launchpad for a drag media empire, spearheaded by their own subscription streaming service, WOW Presents Plus. I spoke to Randy and Fenton about the business model behind the streamer, drag as a cultural phenomenon, and World of Wonder's push into documentaries and scripted content. Our chat began with me asking Fenton whether or not they defer to local drag culture when producing the international versions of Drag Race. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole point of doing RuPaul's Drag Race in any other country is to get the flavor of drag there and the flavor of the culture. And Ru himself is insatiably curious about language. I mean, language is a kind of drag and the way drag queens twist and turn and invent new words. And Ru's always fascinated to learn, you know, what flashing my tuppence means in the UK or ripping the scab off a can of piss in Australia. And he's just insatiably curious about words and, and the way, you know, you can you can perform drag on words as much as clothes you put on your body. Drag is like a sampling machine of pop culture. And, and so it becomes an interesting way to experience different cultures and different countries around the world. So, you know, in addition to sort of getting the opportunity to experience more fabulous drag queens, it is a different way to look at different parts of the world. The Italian version of The X Factor isn't going to be that interesting to the UK viewer, but drag race, the international versions of Drag Race, each different country wants to see the other respective countries' versions. Is that right? Yeah. That's absolutely right. I mean... You know, as as Rue says, he said it a million times, and I'm sure he'll say it a billion more. You're born naked and the rest is drag. And that applies whether you're born in Italy, born in Russia, born in China, born in Australia, born in New Zealand, you know, wherever you're born. It's the same. It is the same. And, and the other thing is just that, like, it takes a certain kind of creature, and you know, amazing and fascinating creature to be a drag queen, like, and I think if you, A, they make the best, they are, drag queens are today's pop stars. They make the best TV stars on the planet. And B, if you if you understand and can, you know, connect with um, the fabulosity of a drag queen, you know, anywhere, you will relate to them everywhere. That there's something about it doesn't drag has no borders. Yeah, it's the uh, it's the Esperanto of the world, really. I mean, it's different in every place, but everyone understands it. I mean, Randy, you said when you know when when we did Drag Race Thailand, 
um, that was the sort of first time you didn't necessarily have to understand what was being said to be able to follow along and enjoy the show and be invested in it. So it's it's a, a universal language. I guess it's a, it's primarily a visual language, you know. Is there a limit to the number of international versions that you want to do? Because um, it t- took a while until there was obviously the Thai version, but there was quite a lot of time between the US version, the original and for example, the UK version, whereas I think in general, the format industry tends to be quite quick to, once it it's, it senses a potential international version, it, it does as many as possible. But are you looking to kind of keep a lid on the number of international versions? We're not looking to keep a lid on it. Look, drag and drag race has always been an anomaly. And when it comes to TV, whether it was, you know, here in America or globally, there's always been this sort of, cautious approach to drag and drag race. There's always been this apprehension about it. Like, and so the the speed of its, of the global proliferation of drag has to do not with the audience because everybody who's seen it wants it and wants more. It always has to do with the media gatekeepers who think that it's some crazy wacky thing that that could they could never imagine being mainstream. You know, we're we're about to shoot season 14 in the US and the the franchise is really still just like a teenager. It's still people are still just discovering it here in America. Yeah, I think that Randy's right. There was this apprehension, or I would like call it a misperception about what drag is. And I think that if you were to unpack that and say, well, how do you explain that misperception? I think it's probably to do with, you know, long-term institutional society-wide homophobia that has meant that drag existed in the clubs on the margins of society. And it was seen as some sort of either an outlaw thing or as a very niche thing. Um, I always bristle at that word niche because it implies small in a way that's not big. Um, whereas I think that actually, you know, the appeal that there is this universality about drag, you know, it is you're born naked and the rest is drag. There's nothing really, I think so many misperceptions about drag have flourished for so long. And that cutting through that undergrowth or cutting through those um, prejudices, um, that's what has taken a, a while. And you know what? I think in a way it's good that it's taken a while because I think the show has really grown into itself. And I think it's really, we've been able to show that it's not a flash in the pan, you know, that this is a, this is a long-term thing. This is a, uh, seismic is the wrong word, but it is a, a fundamental cultural shift, finally, to recognize the, we say charisma, uniqueness, nerve, and talent, but really it's this sort of, it's create, it's this creativity and this artistic, a spirit that manifests itself in clothes, in hair, in makeup, in looks. You know, it's the it's the total art package. You know. And are you seeing more openness from well, what we would maybe call traditional broadcasters to doing their own versions and maybe focusing it more on their streaming services? Well, I think streaming has been a great leap forward in terms of programming everywhere. You know, I think when you look at what we are allowed now to watch and what audiences are given, thanks to streaming, it's completely different than all the rules of broadcast and cable, which, yeah, I mean, 
not attacking anyone or anything, but they had certain restrictions and therefore out of that came a certain formula and that excluded certain things. But now, you know, you can watch a six part documentary series. You can, you know, you can binge things. So I think streaming has been a great, a great uh, liberator in some respects, you know. It's interesting how certain elements of LGBTQ culture have always had an inherent edginess just by default of being different. How do you balance the risk of drag culture and the inherent riskiness of of what a lot of those people do and and say uh, with with the kind of extra scrutiny that is around at the moment? I don't think we spend a lot of time like worrying about balancing anything. I mean, I think that that that's the sort of lifeblood of drag race and drag. Like it's drag is political. Drag is, is there's an expectation that it is edgy and um, pushes people and, pu- and, and creates, um, y- y- you know, pushes the envelope. Like that's what drag is all about. And so for us, I don't think we spend, we don't really spend any time anxious that it might go too far. Um, we, it is what it is. And um, that's, that's why people, that's what people expect and that's what we deliver. And, you know, I, I would say, I would also say though, combined with that, is that while it's political and while drag sort of pushes the envelope and drag queens are, um, you know, in my mind, they're the sort of heroes or as Rue would say, the Marines of the LGBTQ uh, community. Um, Also, they have enormous heart. And, And that's really, you know, it's the combination of those two things, of the danger and of the outspokenness with the heart and the openness and the vulnerability, because to, to be committed to live that life, that, you know, to take on board those hardships, it's not easy to be a drag queen, even in, you know, even today, even post, even 14 seasons after RuPaul's Drag Race, it is still like, it is, you know, a, a real uh, uh, challenge and commitment, unlike very few other occupations. And to, to do it, takes a kind of tenacity of the, of the human spirit, but also a kind of um, an openness and, and, and heart. And I think it's those things combined that, that make the franchise so successful and why people connect with it so deeply. I think you're right, but you know, that this era of, of people not being allowed to say certain things is, um, you know, it's it's really just another manifestation of Puritanism. And drag, if nothing else, has always been giving the finger to Puritanism. It's always, drag is always about not taking things too seriously, not being under the, the rule of someone saying what you should and shouldn't do. Drag is always about breaking the rules or taking the status quo and inverting it and turning it upside down and inside out and making fun of it. Not in a, an unkind way, in a way that, on the one hand, you know, so much of drag celebrates uh, so much culture that other people dismiss as bad or tasteless or kitsch or throwaway. Drag elevates that and champions that and says, hang on a second, you think this is worthless, but actually look at this, it's amazing. And so I think 
you know, Jack is always going to be fundamentally opposed to any kind of Puritanism, whether it's a right-wing Puritanism or a left-wing Puritanism. And that is is the, the what actually makes drag so political. Before there was Disney Plus, there was World of Wonder uh, Presents. There was. There was World Presents Plus before Disney Plus. And uh, World Presents and there was Plus was outlasted Quibi. Not to... Yeah. There was World <laughs> Presents Plus before Quibi and after. And after Quibi. <laughs> And how? And with a lot less money behind it, <laughs> Wow Presents Plus, World of Wonder, Wow Presents Plus, all independently financed. We are a, we are unique in 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 Hollywood, and it, apparently we're unique in a, in a lot. But of you know, if anyone wants to give us a, a billion and a half dollars to spend in eighteen months, we'll we'll take a crack at it. So <laughs> they know where to reach us. Yeah, I was going to ask about the financial model because, yeah, it is a, an outlier in the sense that you, so you have a whole other kind of development process that's kind of within your own ecosystem. Well, yes, but the development process is is for us refreshingly different to the, the regular network cable development process because the regular development process in, in that world is frustratingly slow. You know, you've got to pitch the idea and then if they like it, maybe they'll get, you've got to write up the deck. And then if they like that, maybe they'll give you a presentation. And then if I like that, maybe they'll give you a pilot. And then if they like that, maybe you'll go to series. It's a long process. I mean, even doing it super, super rapidly is normally about two years. Whereas on the other hand, Randy and I can sit in the office with Tom Campbell and the rest of the team and say, oh, let's do this. And we're doing it like a few weeks later. A lot of our, a lot of our, our, our business model is just based on the fact that we produce like drag queens. We have always been down and dirty. We have always been able, like since the beginning of World of Wonder, like we come from the East Village, we're scrappy. We put everything on the screen. We've never had the luxury of having a budget bigger than the production. So we've always had to be, be resourceful. Like we know how to work glue guns, duct tape and carry a camera. Um, and that's what World of Wonder is all about. And WoW Presents Plus is very much a manifestation of all of that thinking and all of that experience. Yeah. And is it self-sufficient in the sense that you're getting enough paid subscribers into WoW Presents Plus, but that that all that goes towards the the those productions, and you're not, for example, maybe like so the the profits you get from Drag Race as a format. Does that subsidize Wild Presents Plus? Well, it's, it, it, the, the, without sort of, yeah, basically the, the, the sort of the model is we don't spend more than we make. And so, you know, um, and uh, so we do take the, we, you know, whether we make money off Drag Race or other shows that we produce and uh, whether it's subscription income, we'll take that and put money reinvest money in new shows you know the, the joy of it is that we've been able to launch wow presents plus without having to go out and raise millions of dollars without having to convince investors we've been able to do it by i mean really everyone at world of wonder is is so hard working and <laughs> it's because they do several jobs at once and we've been able to like launch wow presents plus with the current infrastructure of uh, world of wonder rather than having to sort of you know raise and spend tons of money, which seems to have been the, you know, the, the fundamental challenge facing so many, whether it was the initial dot-com boom or, or, you know, more recently Quibi, I just think it's very hard to, 
to launch a successful venture in the internet world, it's, you know, it's just hard. And I think it's easy to spend, easy to have an enormous burn rate and lose billions. And I think when it comes to development, there really is no better method than to try it. I think that, you know, a lot of the market research, look, algorithms are brilliant, but the one thing, the, all they can tell you is what people have done in the past. They are by definition retrospective. They're based on data of what people have done. No algorithm can tell you what people will do or what people will want or what people will watch. And I think that's a fundamental flaw of algorithms and data-based market research. Whereas Randy and I may have an idea for a show and we may fall flat on our face. Fine. It didn't work. But then every now and then something does work. And it didn't come out of an algorithm and it didn't come out of data research. I bet you any, any one of the hits in television in the last 50 years, none of them came out of research and development. I don't think, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, also if you can, if you can produce efficiently and passionately, then, then the amount of money you might spend producing a short run of something might not be that much more more than the amount of money you'd spend to develop it. Like after it just, but a lot of outlets and executives just don't see things that way. So in a way, there's an element of returning to your roots with Wow Doc and the documentary genre. You mentioned when you launched that, that there were some gaps in the market that you're looking uh, to fill. So tell me a bit more about those. We, we launched Wow Docs because there were stories we wanted to tell. And even though this is definitely a golden age of documentaries, certain kinds of stories seem to get preferential funding over other kinds of stories. And we love pop culture and the sort of stories that come out of that. Part of what I think is important for us and part of part of our, our business model is that we've identified an audience. First, we, we did that in America and now it's global. And our content is, is stuff that inspires us, but we think that is adjacent to drag races, adjacent that might be interesting to that audience. So Wow Docs is very much about, about continuing to produce content that we would take out. I mean, we'll take out Wojnarowicz and we will take Xplant out to other broadcasters to license, but ultimately they will all come home to roost on Wow Presents Plus. You know, Xplant, we're just finishing it. It's gonna premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival. We don't see any of these as necessarily being big uh, um, money-making propositions, but it does build out the, the content on WOW Presents Plus and makes it more of a destination. I heard something the other day that I want to borrow. It was uh, Dermot McCormack, um, who is at uh, LiveX Live, uh, another SVOD, and we were chatting, and he said their mission is to overserve the underserved. And I said, you consider that stolen, you know, and here it is stolen, overserve the underserved. I mean, I want to put that on a T-shirt or embroider it on a pillow or something. How about scripted? Because that's a genre that a lot of your documentaries have been turned into, but it's also a genre that's notoriously expensive. Well, and slow. <laughs> yeah. But we do have enough, we have, I, I mean, I don't think any of our scripted projects have been announced yet. We do have three scripted projects in development right now. 
and we are we are develop, developing them in a more traditional way because and actually one's in production but it hasn't been announced but in each instance they are you know it's content it's content that probably only world of wonder would produce it you know it's taken a few minutes to get partners on board but we do have partners in that arena Randy Barbato and Fenton Bailey Rurangi follows a transgender activist who returns to the remote, politically divided dairy community after a decade, hoping to reconnect with his estranged father, who hasn't heard from him since before he transitioned. Created and written by trans activist Cole Myers and Oliver Page, the project was directed by Max Curry and produced by Craig Gainsborough, who told me about how the production took guidance from a trans consultation panel at each stage, from script drafts to the final edit. First, I asked Craig how the five-part series, which has been repackaged as a feature-length film, was being received by audiences in New Zealand as it screened at universities, cinemas, and other venues around the country. It's been really interesting, the feedback, actually. Uh, some of the feedback we're getting is from, obviously, from the transgender audience, because that, that was one of our key audiences that we've made it for. Um, and on the whole there it's been phenomenally positive and i think that's a testament to having cole you know in that position as as writer and as co-producer on the on the show and really driving that voice so what we're putting out there hasn't been problematic to the community also because of the safeguard practices we had in place um, but it's really resonating because it's a transgender story that's not about being transgender uh, it, it's it's about you know, coming home, about love, about hope, and about healing. And so that's really resonating quite well. Um, but what's also been really cool is just to see the response from a more mainstream audience. You know, we screened this to, um, to a rural audience with a lot of, like, dairy farmers. And uh, if, if you've seen the film, you'll know that it, it's fairly critical of the agricultural industry. Um, or at least it's, it's, it's bringing up uh, conversations that might be sensitive subjects for them. And um, the response was actually really positive because of the fact that it is fit, it, it is pretty universal. Um, because we're telling that story of healing, of of family, of of reconnecting um, with your whanau, it's um, it's been crossing some of those boundaries that we thought would exist, um, which has been quite awesome to see. Um, yeah, and and uh, it's it's been getting pretty pretty good reception abroad too. I mean I mean Hulu as you know, has picked it up. So it'll be streaming exclusively on Hulu uh, from the 14th of June, um, which is wonderful. Uh, we've, we've actually just done a panel discussion with Outfest about it. So, so the queer community, especially internationally, seems to be really, really loving it, which is awesome because when you put so much time and effort into something, it's nice to feel like people like it. The involvement of coal, obviously that's key and that's all to do with storytelling sovereignty, which is coming up pretty much in every conversation I have with scripted producers here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and a real recognition that if you're going to be putting something on screen in involving a marginalized group, you need to in involve people from that community. Are you hopeful that that, that is becoming the standard? Yeah, and it's funny you use the word involvement, I think it needs. It's beyond that, you know. It's collaboration, and and 
working with and power sharing and that's the discussions that need to be happening and I think in New Zealand in Aotearoa there's an incredible move that way maybe I live in a giant bubble but I sort of feel like like all the filmmakers around me are really practicing what they preach there and that's collaboration that reaches beyond you know just on screen it's it's all the way from the first inception of the script through all the way through to to delivering uh, where you're involving not only just the filmmakers involved in it, but also the community that is being represented, especially if you're working with a marginalized group and you're giving them the power to speak up in a safe way if there is something problematic at any stage and to be able to um, make sure that that gets fixed. And you mentioned earlier safeguarding measures that you incorporated right from the very beginning of the process. Can you take me through some of those? Well, right from the start, I mean, the very first safeguard we got is that we're telling a trans story and it's being written by a trans writer. So that's your first safeguard. It's authentic. Um, the, the other major one we had is we had a, a, a trans panel that we set up where we brought prominent people from the trans community in Auckland and New Zealand together. Uh, and they formed up a panel of about five to six people. Um, and then at about at all the major milestones in the production. So we're talking like first draft, uh, third draft, shooting script, um, rough cuts, final cuts, etc. We would bring that panel together and allow them a space to, to review the material and to raise any concerns that were problematic, um, but not with not with being watched while they're doing that, you know, in, in, a, in a safe space where they can do that and talk amongst themselves. And anything that was problematic that was raised, um, they basically had veto power on. Um, so they could put a stop on production and say, you, you know, like these things are massively problematic. We're not going to continue until they're resolved. Um, which meant that at every stage, you know, we were making sure that there was nothing harmful um, being put out there for the community. Because the trans community and the gender diverse community are exposed to messages every day that might be harmful. And we didn't want to contribute to that. And, it's, and, and I think society as a whole shouldn't be con contributing to that. But you've got to start somewhere, right? So, um, yeah, that's what we did. So, for, so moving ahead, so we're looking, we're about to go into development for season two. So that will be extended now because we have such a strong Maori storyline coming through the script. That'll be extended now to a second panel, which will have the same power, um, but be made up from um, Maori from regional hapu, as well as um, uh, as well as co-producer Twitty Waititi will be leading that, uh, and be able to um, bring together um, Maori to ensure that representation of 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 Maori is not problematic, and is respectful and representative of. Um, the region, because while Urirangi is a fictional town uh, and a fictional place, uh, we still have to film it somewhere. Um, so we just want to make sure that that's all being done ethically and and um, with the best interests of of Maori at heart. How did it go from a short form series to a feature film to Hulu? Blood, sweat, and tears is the short answer. Um, no, I mean it's it's been. I think for Cole, Max, and I, you know, we've been 
in this together from the start. And for us, um, it was really early on recognized the fact that this is this is a show where the trans community has an opportunity to have a voice and to tell their own story. And with that comes responsibility. Um, and it's a responsibility to do the best you can possibly do with it because, you know, you've got funding organizations with which was NZ on air initially. They gave us the initial pool of funding along with NZME as a platform. And they, you know, trusted us with that money. And unfortunately, as you know, as I'm, I'm sure a lot of people in marginalized groups would understand, like, you kind of have to do the best you possibly can with that so that there's trust for future investments. Um, and so it was it, the burden of that responsibility weighed really heavily on us. We have to do the best we can. We have to take us as far as we can. So we took the little money we had and we stretched it and then we stretched it some more and then we had something to show. So we took that to show um, and slowly but surely we attracted other other sources of finance, um, some private equity finance and um, and uh, even some uh, even some promotional um, product placement subtly hidden in there, which I... I'd love to know if people pick up on it. Yeah, and we, we kind of grew that to the point where we, we doubled that initial budget we had. I, I think it's really important also to kind of talk to the true value of the production, though, if you're going to talk actual figures, because on a production like this, the amount of deferred time and payment uh, that everyone put in is huge. You know, it's, it's pretty much, it pretty much doubles whatever we spent, you know. Um, so, yeah, we started off at like 300000 That's public knowledge that was our initial Kiwi dollars yep 300,000 New Zealand dollars um, we and and yeah we kind of over we, we doubled that and then if you take everyone else everyone's deferred payments and all of the in-kind and and all of the um, generosity of everybody involved it's probably about 1.4 or so mil is the is the true value of of what we've produced um, and that's you know not taking into consideration the fact that we're cutting corners everywhere we can, right? So that's like stripped down lean. The Yellow Affair, uh, and, and I want to give a plug to them, the Yellow Affair is amazing. Carolina and the team there are incredible. Um, we met them at Berlinale Series Market. So Rirangi was selected for Berlinale Series Market, uh, which was incredible experience. Uh, and we tripped over there with support from the New Zealand Film Commission. And... Um, Actually, off the back of that, the New Zealand Film Commission then supported us to, with, with post-production funding to create a feature film version. And that feature film version is what's been traveling some of the film festivals since then. It is very specific to Aotearoa, New Zealand, with a lot of the themes and issues it, it deals with. Take me through some of those. And was there any kind of concern around it being too specific? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is specific. I don't think from our side there was ever any concern about it being too specific. And I think that comes down to remembering that we started small. We never, we didn't at the start have any pressures on us to create. Um, and I guess this is, you know, as well as kind of the burden of responsibility and, and all the other challenges that we faced as a production, low money, etc. Um, 
we did we, one of the benefits is that we didn't have the pressure of having to deliver um, returns, you know, uh, and, and to deliver an audience that was enormous, you know, like a mainstream audience. So we could really focus on the trans audience and on the gender diverse audience uh, more broadly and um, and expand that out to an intersectional audience, uh, you know, queer, Maori, uh, indigenous. Um, so the, those are the audiences we wanted to speak to. So being specific was never an issue for us. But, it, but I, I think there's a taste and a flavor out there in the world for specific stories. You know, we, we had hoped that we would get a, a large streamer in the US. I mean, it's a very unique film, right? Like you're talking about transgender experience uh, led by Els Carrad, who's our lead, who's uh, indigenous Maori and transgender and it's just a phenomenal performance. Um, and I think the, you know, what, we, what we have made is something that is really authentic to that community. And um, while I am, I guess, surprised, I'm also not, I'm not surprised in the fact that I think like, people are looking for authentic stories. They're looking for that genuine voice and that unique voice. And that's, um, I feel like that's something that's been central to Rurangi from the start. We've been loving working with Hulu. Like they've been just really awesome to deal with. Um, yeah, so it's a it's a great team there, and I feel like they they get Rurangi too, um, which was another fear. You know, often when you partner with these big companies and and you're a, a small little production, um, you can kind of get like put on the shelf in a corner or just pushed into the pushed into the background, but they're really actually supporting us and they really can see the passion, I guess, that we've brought to this. And it, yeah, and so it's, it's actually incredible working with them. I don't know about really too much in the rest of the world, but I know in New Zealand that, you know, all the kids at school and, and the youth that are, that, are, that are coming up seem to be far more intersectional and aware of, of, um, of things like gender diversity and and like uh sexual diversity um and i think if broadcasters and networks are not picking up on that then i'd be very surprised you know so i i definitely think that that the fact that we have so many like quite young characters and and youthful stories and it is quite you know a modern story um i do think that is appealing in developing season two of, of the project, um, are you looking? What format are you looking for it to take? Because obviously, it's been short form, it's been a feature film. What what do you see as the kind of ideal format? Yeah, that's a great question because we're super excited right now. We just we've we've been storylining and working out where season two is going. And honestly, like Cole's got some big dreams, <laughs> which I, which we love. So, um, but we, we're going to stick with the series format for season two. So yeah, we've been doing a lot of thinking about it. The, I mean, it's been incredible making a feature and we feel like the series, the, the initial short form series cut really well into a feature, but there's just so much story and we've got so many characters with different potential arcs and journeys that we want to explore. So we're quite excited to start going down those paths and avenues. And each one of those stories allows us to explore different things that are happening within contemporary society. Um, you know, so we, we can start to address 
and, and explore ideas and concepts such as um, decolonization or, or rather reclamation uh, and um, reclaiming Māori Whakapapa and, and, and um, we can start to explore uh, you know, into depth the, the environmental debates that are occurring in small towns and also uh, mental health issues that are actually occurring in small towns um, because this is something that goes under the radar quite a lot uh, and all of these are, are relevant to our world and, and um, the series format really will allow us to do that. So I don't, we're not going to go long form, so we're not going to do hour-long eps. I think we'll, we'll probably land up doing uh, like 10 to 12 half-hour eps. Craig Gainsborough. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online, on mobile, and on social media. Thanks for listening.